Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis and I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. I hope by now that you know that this is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their field and we tackle the most important questions that we all face in the diagnosis and the treatment of thoracic cancers. It's important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not in any way have any input to the planning, content or delivery of anything that we discuss. Welcome to another episode of our BTOG podcast, BTOG Does. Uh, my name is still Tom Newsom davis I'm a medical oncologist at uh, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and uh, vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. Um, as you may know, as an avid regular listener, we have been focusing recently on rare mutations in lung cancer. And I think it's a really important thing to do because we may not see these patients very much, but when we do, we must make sure we know what's going on. We must make sure we're acquainted with the best treatments to best serve them. So this week, we're going to focus on RET. And I'm delighted to be uh, joined by my colleague from up the road in Chelsea, uh, Nadja Tokacha, who is a medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital. Nadja, welcome to our podcast. Hello, Tom. Thank you for having me. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for giving your Tuesday evening to join mm -hmm. me on the end of a Teams call. Um, so RET fusions is what we're going to focus on. Um, I guess my first question, as always, I start off with the basics, is what is RET? Um, and people will know that RET is one of the fusions we see. Um, tell me about RET and tell me about how it might relate to other fusions in terms of how common it is, that, that kind of thing. Okay, so um, RET, um, it stands for Rearranged During Transfection. Uh, it's a very intuitive uh, name there, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll continue with RET from here. Um, it is a tyrosine kinase receptor, um, so right. we're familiar with those. Um, and like other TKRs, it can be pro-oncogenic when its activation is abnormally altered. Um, and as we know with other um, TKIs, abnormal activation can be a result of changes in, in the gene sequence, and that can happen through either mutations, uh, so changes in a single point in the gene sequence, or due to um, uh, re rearrangements, which are sort of juxtapositions within the gene sequences, or um, as we most commonly see in our non-small cell lung cancer patients, it can be due to uh, fusions of the genes. So RET fusions are the type of um, abnormal uh, RET um, variant that we see most commonly in non-small cell lung cancer. I'm going to jump in there and annoy you. Um, you made a really interesting point about there being more than one abnormality. You can just get RET mutations. If one of our colleagues is looking at their NGS report, there isn't a fusion, but there's a RET mutation. That's a different beast to what we're talking about generally here. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So you may observe RET mutations in other malignancies that may be pathogenic or there may be um, currently, I, I'm not aware of any that are targetable. However, in non-small cell lung cancer, they're unlikely. They're likely to be of uncertain significance and they're certainly not currently uh, actionable in a kind yeah. of uh, therapeutic sense. Grand. Sorry, I cut you off in your prime just before that. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Do stop me if I start to um, go on too much. Um, but um, I think I was just about to say that um, these RET fusions that we'd see in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, we only see in about one to 2% of mm, advanced yeah. non-small cell lung cancer patients. So they are uh, comparatively rare. 
um, uh, to some of the other uh, variants that we see. So a bit um, less common than elk? Uh, a bit less common than elk. Yeah, um, yeah we probably see elk, see elk in up to about 5%. Yes. Um, yeah. So maybe similar to ROS1, perhaps? Probably similar, somewhere along with ROS1, yeah. yeah. Um, and who gets this? Are, are we talking about our classic non-smoking patient population? If so, do we have any guides about age, gender, mm. histological subtype, those kind of things, to allow people to keep an eye out for a, a possible RET patient? Yes, um, RET fusions are more commonly seen in uh, younger patients, generally those under the age of around 60. Um, they are um, predominantly seen in patients who have a very light smoking history or who have never smoked, and they're most commonly seen in patients with adenocarcinoma, histological subtype, um, and this is all kind of common to other oncogenic drivers that we see in non-small cell lung yeah. cancer. Um, they tend to present a more advanced disease stage, um, and around half of the patients will develop brain metastases over their lifetime. So brain metastases are presentation are also quite common. And do we see, like we do in some of the other rarer subtypes, like the ROS ones, do we see that venous thromb thromboembolism in increased risk, or is that not something we see in red? Um, do you know what? In RET, I think I, I have seen it, um, but I, I'm not aware of any data to tell us actually of the frequency. I suppose mm. it's part yeah, of yeah. that rare, rarity of the fusion. Yeah, yeah. So we, we our colleagues need to be keeping an eye out for this non-smoking, younger, adenocarcinoma patient population, which we're now familiar with that may be harboring a mutation. Uh, they've, they're going to be getting their um, NGS back. How do we... What's, what's the best way of diagnosing RET? If you had your, your best way, how would you do this? Um, well, there are several different molecular testing techniques that are available out there to detect RET alterations. Um, we know of things like immunohistochemistry, RT-PCR, FISH, which are generally widely available, uh, familiar to most our laboratories, um, but um, they don't have quite the sensitivity that we need to detect RET fusions. Um, what is um, currently internationally recommended in guidelines such as ESMO guidelines are essentially RNA-based NGS techniques uh, as the first choice for detection of RET fusions. And that's because of their superiority in terms of sensitivity and specificity over some of the other techniques that are available. I think um, that's a really important thing just to say, which is for those uh, perhaps uh, a little bit less experienced with molecular results to remember that when your lab gives back your results, certainly the results I get from the Marsden Molecular Hub, which do ours down at Chelsea, we get a DNA and a separate RNA analysis. Always make sure you've seen both because if you've only seen the DNA analysis, you have not seen a proper fusion panel and you must look at that. Really important. That's, that's so, exactly so, right. Uh, RNA NGS is, is your go-to and that would be seen as the gold standard, correct? That's exactly right. So we always do both, as you say, DNA and RNA NGS uh, on our Royal Marsden panel uh, of around 200 tissue um, genes that we test yeah. for. Um, uh, the um, thing to say is that um, the reason for this low specificity or sensitivity with the DNA is that um, you, you can't quite discriminate between what's expressed and unexpressed with the DNA in terms of genes and also if you've got large intronic regions so these regions that do not encode a protein or you have lots of repetitive sequences of DNA then that does impact DNA performance whereas with your RNA sequencing 
you're only analyzing the transcriptome, so the stuff that's actually encoding the protein, um, and that has better ability to detect your red fusion partner. And obviously, red fusion a red gene can have a number of different fusion partners, and that also may have some implication in terms of prognosis um, and uh, and predictive uh, value um, in, in terms of um, uh, sort of your future future treatments. Tell me a bit about that. The the commonest being KIF five B. I always call it KIF five B. I don't know if that's the really right one. Um, that's the one I've tended to see the most common. There are some others. If our colleagues are getting their NGS back result back and they're telling them different partners does that make a practical difference or are we going to be uh, treating them the same way and this is more of academic interest um yes that's right the kif 5b uh, ret fusions account for the majority of the fusions we see so around 70 to 90 percent of cases will be kif 5b rets and then followed by um ccdc6 uh, ret yeah. fusions and NCOA4 ret that's the kind of the other common ones that we see I mean they will all be um, uh, targetable and they should all be treated with uh, ret targeting therapies um, and the work around um, you know the clinical implications of these specific gene fusion partners isn't fully defined but there is some data to suggest uh, that efficacy of ret inhibitors may vary uh, depending on the ret fusion partner for example there is some data from the arrow trial which we'll talk a bit more about um, about I suspect in a bit, which is the trial of in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. So that indicates that patients with the CCDC6 red-driven disease may have slightly better prognosis um, compared to the others. So if our colleagues don't happen to have access to a reliable RNA NGS panel, and unfortunately it remains the case that not everyone in the UK does, are there other, any other tissue-based assays that which are second best but will do, or really should people be absolutely holding out for RNA, NGS, and somehow finding a provider elsewhere that can do that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, RNA, um, as you say, uh, NGS will be the gold standards. Um, IHC is uh, widely available and it's most convenient, but it does have a poor sensitivity and as well as high false positive rates. So you can't rely on it fully. Um, the fish is probably your next go-to um, okay. as well. So you could either confirmed or confirm your IHC finding with fish. Okay um ctdna very much the uh exciting thing going on at the moment we of course have a a, a national ctdna pilot going on which you and i are part of very exciting um how could ctdna at picking up ret fusions and is there a difference in the different panels people might be familiar with garden they might be familiar with foundation they may be familiar with other platforms as well there are more than one what's your take on that um, I mean, you know, as we know, there are huge advantages to ctDNA testing. It's a simple blood draw, can be done in clinic, it'll spare the patient invasive procedures and can be repeated easily. Um, it can also sort of reflect some of the heterogeneity that we may see across, see across the different metastatic sites, which will all shed the ctDNA into the bloodstream. Um, I suppose the main concern about ctDNA that we are aware of is its lower sensitivity. Yeah. So you may not pick up much of it in patients who have limited uh, disease in terms of disease burden or may have predominantly sort of intrathoracic disease and so not many extrathoracic disease sites. So if you have a negative ctDNA, you have to revert back yeah. to tissue. Um, but if it's positive, you're happy. Well, but if it's positive, and, and that's the, the big change that's occurred fairly recently, is that now the NHS commissioning allows us to commence these targeted treatments um, based on ctDNA findings of a confirmed oncogenic driver without the need 
for tissue confirmation, provided we have a correct radiological context of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, which is where our pilot comes in. Yeah. And hopefully that will confirm that it's a feasible and cost-effective way to introduce ctDNA NGS into clinic. Um, in terms of your question regarding the different um, panels, I mean, they're all much of a muchness. Um, it, it's all about the reporting, I think, when it comes to these different panels. So it, 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 the key is getting a, a report that makes sense and that's reasonable, yeah. has the information in it that you need. You know, some of them, for example, will report things like copy numbers and um, uh, variant alley fraction, which others don't. And that's all in, useful information. So the ones that give you the, the most clear um, optimal information are the best to use. I think that's one slight disadvantage, I think, of CTDNA, which is you haven't got someone to speak to. And I would strongly recommend to colleagues, they would have heard me banging about this before, which is when you get your tissue molecular result back, if you're not sure, find a friend in the lab and and, and, uh, and email them. And uh, you're my colleague, Suzanne, uh, Suzanne McMahon, who's in your lab, is fabulous at answering my annoying emails. But if you don't understand, just email and ask. Because you can, learn, I learned so much from uh, my molecular colleagues. Oh, um, absolutely! Uh, it's all about getting that um, expert advice and interpretation from people who know how the assays work. Um, and we're very lucky that we have access to a, a, a genomic tumor board where we essentially discuss all of our CT DNA yeah. and GS results. And we do come across many that uh, are very challenging to interpret. Yeah. Um, so you touched a little bit upon uh, the fact that patients with RET unfortunately more likely to have brain metastases. So would you be doing a baseline MRI for anyone you found out had a RET fusion? Yes, absolutely. Um, they're um, highly likely to have um, brain metastasis a diagnosis. But even for those that don't, in our centre, we are performing regular uh, MRI brain surveillance, usually yeah. about six monthly uh, or, or during treatment in patients without brain metastases. And I, I think that's good practice. I mean, that, that very much fits in with what is often done in ALK. There's a lot of similarities, and I, I do agree with that, and we do it. I appreciate that not everyone has access to MRI readily, although if you're doing it six monthly, it is usually feasible. And I appreciate there is a bit of a debate about would you want to know and effect on driving and driving licenses. But because you can do so much, if there are brain metastases, I, I do think it's an important thing to, to consider. Any other particular diagnostics in terms of imaging or apart from the MRI and making sure that we've done our proper NGS? Is that is that our lot? I think that's generally our lot. I mean, all patients should have full staging investigation as standard, you know, your CT or PET. Um, obviously, all the patients with early um, non-small cell lung cancer with a red fusion should be considered for the standard um, radical treatment approaches mm -hmm. with surgery or radiotherapy. Um, and there are some you know, uh, some research in that area in terms of um, trying to bring RET inhibitors into the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting. So um, important to uh, be aware of um, uh, the, you know, the molecular profile of those patients with early non-small cell lung cancer as well. That that's a really good point, and and I and I think we should remind people that, of course, at the moment, one we are doing it in the advanced setting, but there are trials going on, as you say, libretto being well, uh, one of the libretto studies being in the adjuvant setting. So, see whether that is available regionally. We've just opened it at Chelsea. We're about to open it at Chelsea, actually. Well, um, okay, so we're going to move on to the exciting stuff, which is mm -hmm. what gets oncologists really excited, and uh, probably all of our respiratory friends falling asleep. But. Um, what is the first line treatment if someone has picked up a ret fusion? Because that has changed in terms of what's available 
through noise. Mm. Um, people may know that there are predominantly two main drugs, uh, which are licensed, which is selpacatinib and prelcetinib. Um, maybe tell, let's focus on selpacatinib first. That's the libretto 001 study is the main, the main detail. Um, tell us about that and, and perhaps compare it to the ARROW trial, which is the prelcetinib study what, what's your take on those so, so um as you say salpicatinib is one of our currently licensed um treatments and it's available uh, in the nhs on the cancer drugs fund right. um, it's a highly selective and potent ret inhibitor and has strong cns activity as well and it's been specifically designed to target activated red, red signaling it's a bit of a historical background prior to salpicatinib and prosetinib coming along. Um, there have been a number of non-selective uh, RET inhibitors, so multi-kinase inhibitors that were tested in preclinical preclinical setting did show some uh, inhibitory activity on RET, but unfortunately never that never translated into clinical benefits. So really very exciting when salpicatinib and prosetinib came along, and early data on the benefit of salpicatinib came from the Libretto 001 trial. Um, that published its preliminary data in 2020. That was a single arm phase one, uh, phase two clinical trial. And um, that looked at um, salpicatinib both pre-treated and treatment naive patients and showed response rates around 60% um, in your pre-treated patients um, and about almost 85% in patients who were treatment naive uh, with salpicatinib. Um, most excitingly and importantly, the intracranial response rates were in the order of almost 90% with patients with brain metastases. And then based on this data that was taken forward into the phase three trial of selpicatinib called Libretto 431, and that started enrolling in about early 2020. And this is a proper multicenter randomized comparative phase three trial, which is comparing selpicatinib with platinum-based chemotherapy with or without pembrolizumab in treatment naive patients. Um, and only a couple of weeks ago, we had a presentation yeah. of its early PFS data. So this was from the pre-planned interim analysis, which showed near doubling of PFS uh, in favor of self-catnib with a hazard ratio of 0.46, which is really quite exciting. And and just to remind the, the audience that was in ESMO 23, and this podcast is going out after our BTOG ESMO update but if you wanted to see a bit more about the libretto data and see some of the slides I'm sure it's going to be included in that update so that and that, that libretto 431 that um uh, selpicatinib versus chemo stroke immuno uh, was in the presidential session and was you know all sorts of excitement going on when that came it out was. Mm -hmm. um, so interestingly enough what you, in fact, have said is that selpicatinib was licensed and NICE approved on the basis of a phase one, phase two study. That's absolutely right. Yes, it is, um, you know, a NICE approved within the certain funding criteria and only currently mm -hmm. available within the CDF. But hopefully this uh, phase three data will strengthen its position further and make it more routinely commissioned. And I, I think that's a really important just side thing to pick out, which is in rare tumours, it's very difficult to run big studies. And I, I, I think it's to the credit of the company behind Selpacatinib that they went on and did this big Libretto 431 study. But there are downsides to that. And there's this fabulous discussion in, in ESMO by a gentleman called Benjamin Bessin, who's from um, Institut Gustave Roussy in France, kind of railing actually against the fact that why have 
we had to undertake a large phase three study to show what we knew already, which is it's a really good drug, which have cost huge amounts of money and will have meant that some patients didn't get selpicatinib and got chemo. And is that the right thing to do? And I think he makes a very good point because I think selpicatinib is a really good example of a drug that we knew was really effective based on phase one, phase two, and mm. got through nice. Mm. you rightly say with some conditions attached mm. and we should be championing this approach where you don't have to wait five years for 300 people to go through a study we can do it in select drugs on, on smaller numbers yeah. um so it's clearly a very effective drug um is prelcetinib as effective that was in the arrow study that was their phase one phase two study that's right. I mean, prolcetinib um, was, you know, went through very similar testing in phase one, two. And, you know, again, good overall responses were seen. Um, around 60% of patients previously treated with platinum-based chemo um, uh, did have a response and around 70% of treatment-naive patients. So again, pretty impressive numbers. Um, didn't don't quite have the same data on the intracranial um, uh, responses as we did from um, from libretto um, but that is currently also being in, uh, evaluated in a phase three trial um, and data on that is still outstanding I believe that's only just uh, that's the accelerate and I believe that's only just completed recruitment um, so do, do you think there's you know can you choose between the two drugs I mean admittedly the only one available I believe on nice or three nice is is selpicatinib but if you yeah. had a magic one both available is there anything in it or is it pepsi versus cola they're all the same thing it's difficult to tell at the moment. I mean, Prosetinib is certainly approved in the US and EU, but not funded in England and Wales. And it's to do with cost effectiveness yeah. um, rather than necessarily lack of inferior efficacy compared to selpicatinib. Um, But as I say, selpicatinib at the moment, it's this brain data that I, I yeah. think at the moment would make me go for that first. Yeah. And so clearly effective. You talked about the very high response rate, the very high intracranial response rate. Uh, good durations of uh, activity, the medium progression-free survival, uh, the the progression-free survival hazard ratio, I think you said in the libretto 431, SELPA versus chemo stroke IO was 0.47, which is very impressive. Mm -hmm. um, what about side effects? Are these easy drugs? Mm -hmm. Are these difficult drugs? Are there any particular toxicities we should be keeping our eye open for? Yeah, so the adverse events of for both of the drugs are mainly due to their off-target effects on the VEGF signaling pathway. So it's things like hypertension, edema, diarrhea. Um, you also get a bit of nausea, abdominal pain, headaches. They will cause low blood counts, particularly prosetinib. Mm. And, and liver enzyme elevations like transaminitis um but, but you know these are all things that we can generally manage in clinic. So certainly better tolerated in the chemotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the hypertension, certainly in the patients I've had on these agents is something to watch. It's reasonably easy to manage, um, mm -hmm. although we've all slightly forgotten how to manage hypertension, um, which is a bit embarrassing. Um, but, yeah, I've seen that and I've certainly seen elevation of liver enzymes, which did sometimes require a dose reduction. But as you say, it's very similar to that we're seeing with lots of our targeted agents. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I found them more manageable. Um so, and as you mentioned, selpicatinib in England, Wales is available first line. Um, and we wait to see whether other agents um, join that as well. It's actually currently available within the cancer drug 
fund for both previously treated and treatment naive for fusion positive patients. So if you've got a patient who had chemo or IO before and is now progressing and you've discovered a retfusion, you can access all the catheters. You've taken the word out of my mouth. It's a really important point, which is sometimes we don't spot these in time and you find them with hindsight or you get the NGS back after you've started. So if you've got a patient who's been on chemo, we still have access. Second line, they must get these agents because they are very effective. Absolutely. Let's say you've had someone who's been on their selpocatinib. They've had a great response, but unfortunately a year in, there is progression. But actually it's just into cranial progression and there's ongoing extracranial control. Would you switch agents or would you be speaking to your friendly neuro-oncology team mm. to get their expensive machines out? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, what we tend to do is that we do tend to go and talk to our friendly neuro-oncology colleagues um, and yep. try and maximise the duration of that first-line treatment. Um, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of good data behind that, but anecdotally at least, it does seem to prolong uh, you know, the, the value of that first-line targeted treatment, and we just like to keep our patients on a targeted therapy for as long as possible in the absence of good second-line targeted options. And similarly, if you had isolated extracranial progression, you know, solitary liver metastasis or a solitary bone metastasis, would you be continuing your TKI and persuading our clinical oncology colleagues to irradiate that one area? Um, again, but that's probably one of the trickier situations. We um, currently um, don't have um, commissioning or funding for stereotactic body radiotherapy in that setting. Um, mm -hmm. There was a an excellent trial called HALT excellent trial that was open here, um, but has now completed recruitment, and that was recruiting patients with oncogene-driven um, uh, 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 non-small cell lung cancer with uh, oligometastatic progression, so progression at very few sites of um, extracranial uh, disease and then those patients are randomized to either just continue their um, targeted treatment or to have um, serotactic body radiotherapy to those oligoprogressive sites and continue their targeted treatment and we are looking forward to that data coming through but at the moment generally speaking I suppose it's a sort of clinical decision based on the individual patient as to whether you feel that switching to second line therapy such as chemotherapy mm -hmm. Uh, or would be preferred to continuing um and we look forward to that halt trial which is run by friend of btoc fiona mcdonald uh, hopefully that will report soon and may influence some of the commissioning rules that we uh, we are under um so let's say in fact there's multifocal progression um or there are no targeted radiotherapy options after selpocatinib in the outside of clinical trials, you mentioned chemotherapy. Um, would pemetrexid carboplatin be your, your go-to agent? And would you be adding an immunotherapy? Do you feel immunotherapy adds anything to these non-smoking, uh, mutation-driven cancers, or are we just adding an extra expensive drug that we don't need? Yeah, so... Um, we know that, or, or we have some data at least to show that rat altered lung cancer seem to be particularly sensitive to pemetrexid-based chemo mm -hmm. regimes. Um, so certainly um, carboplatin pemetrexid would um, be my chemo choice in the relapse setting. Um, th th there was some good retrospective data that showed that um, pemetrexid-based um, chemo um, was better or preferred over non-pemetrexid-based regimens yeah. uh, in both first and second line setting when compared to immune checkpoint inhibitors or multi-kinase inhibitors. 
Um, immunotherapy, unfortunately, there's good and increasing data to show that um, it has limited efficacy in all oncogene-driven advancements yeah. in cell line cancers, including RET, fusion-positive yeah. cancers. And in fact, several um, real-world studies with immune checkpoint inhibitors um, have indicated lack of benefit. And in fact, um, patients who received non-immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy were at decreased risk of disease progression compared to those who received ICRs. So definitely wouldn't be my go-to um, immediately. You'd have to think about that fairly carefully as to what yeah. benefit. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it's a really important message. There is very little evidence that they're beneficial. They do increase the risk of subsequent issues with things like um, pneumonitis. We've seen this with other mutations we see it with alp we see it with exon exon egfr exon 20 insertion um and we've had some data for other mutation driven cancers uh confirming this to be the case for example q 789 so i agree with you i i don't think we should be using immunotherapy in these patients which is difficult because given the young age and the patient demographic they're the guys who tend to know about immunotherapy and want to know where their immunotherapy is but i think we have to be clear that this is not something uh, that we should be throwing around and, and unless there's particular unusual reasons to do so that's right um, I mean, there so, can be difficult conversations in clinic yeah you know, we're doing pdl1 testing on these yeah. patients they may have high pdl1 expression but there is no evidence that even those patients absolutely benefit no i absolutely agree with you um what uh in terms of prognosis so we, we've talked about that these patients are doing well um the median progression free survival in libretto 431 was over two years which is fabulous um are there any other things we can guide um our prognostication we we know for example in alk that if you also have a tp53 mutation um or an rb1 mutation similarly actually in, in mm -hmm. egfr the prognosis is unfortunately less good than just an elk or just an egfr do we have the same thing in in ret or is this still an evidence-free zone yeah i think there's not a lot of evidence behind it we talk, talked a little bit about fusion partners and that that yeah. might have some um prognostic implications um but certainly we know that co-occurring variants like tp53 rb1 stk11 etc could carry worse prognosis um because partly they're also less, they tend to be less chemo and radiosensitive. So whatever future treatments you yeah. might wish to employ, they may be less. Yeah. Um, and the new things in RET. So you mentioned Libretto 431. So I'm just going to briefly revisit that. So this was the phase three confirmation of first line cell percatinib compared to chemo plus or minus immuno, big study, very impressive they managed to recruit to it i think everyone thought that was pretty good we've talked about the medium progression free survival we talked about the progression free survival hazard ratio 0.7 which is pretty pretty impressive no new signals in terms of toxicity but some interesting data about brain activity neuroprotection i guess that fits in with what you said earlier about how effective these drugs are what what was your take on the libretto data in particular the the, the brain bit I mean, we have to um, remember that this is um, all results of a interim efficacy analysis. So it's early yes. data. And as always, we've got to wait for mature data and we've got mm -hmm. to wait for um, overall survival data. But 
um, it would be difficult to imagine that this magnitude of benefit that we see with PFS wouldn't translate into. Yes, I would. I would fall off my seat personally. But as you say, we must. We must wait. Um, like good, good conditions for the data. But you know, the, the certainly the um uh the PFS data for um progression in the central nervous system was also very impressive. I think the hazard ratio um for um. Uh, the core specific hazard ratio for progression in the CNS was something like 0.28. So again, it's extraordinary, even, isn't it? Yeah, extraordinary absolutely. number. Yeah. And so just for those of you who aren't familiar with what that means, that means there's an eight, more than 80% reduction in the chances of progression, which is remarkable and fits in interestingly with the phase one data. Um, I was looking through, I was cheating actually before you came mm -hmm. online. I had a quick look at what one of the tweets I sent from, from Esmo um, and I was looking whether there was a difference in PFS between the different fusion partners, and it didn't seem to be so far. So we will see um, whether the phase three data to, um, bears that out or, or not. And I couldn't see any other particular subgroup that did or didn't benefit. And interestingly, whether you had brain metastases or not, you did equally well, different uh, genders equally well, no difference according to geographical or racial heritage. Kind of across the board, it's a better treatment, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's Libretto 431. You mentioned Accelerate, which is the Prowcetinib phase three, which we think is now finished recruiting and we look forward to data. That might be next year. Who knows? That's correct. I, I believe they're only just still open for recruitment, but I, I think planned ah, okay. recruitment was end of October. So I think we're, I think they're nearly there. Uh, and yes, it'll probably take a year or so to get that data through. Yeah. Um, so eagerly awaiting that. And what's really new in data? So let's say we have someone who's been through a first line RET inhibitor. They have been through their second line chemo. They have progressed. Do we have novel RET agents coming through? Um, or is it also early? They're just a combination of letters and numbers and we don't know quite what the drugs are yet and how well they work. So I suppose there are a couple of um, strategies um, for overcoming resistance uh, to RET inhibitors. Um, one um, is potentially targeting MET um, as a as one of the resistance mechanisms. Yep. So we see that commonly with other um, oncogenic drivers. It's a pathway that's commonly um, altered under, under, under TKI pressure. Um, and we see it in about almost 15% uh, of patients from some of the you know, relatively small um, data cohorts um, from tissue and blood of RET-treated patients. Um, so there are, again, some very small um, numbers, but patients who've been treated with um, MET-targeting um, uh, drugs, such as crizotinib or carizantinib with sulpicatinib, who also have increased MET-expression. Yeah. Uh, and they ha there has been some clinical benefit reported including partial responses and does but that mean that in, in sorry to interrupt you but that does that mean with your first line or post chemo patients you're rebiopsying or um and should our colleagues be considering that or does that is that a, still a bit niche um probably not as common in ret as it is with other um oncogenic drivers where we do have established second line um tar targeted agents however um absolutely always worth considering a, a re-biopsy or, or, or hopefully in the future a liquid biopsy yeah uh, look at these uh look, look to look for resistance mechanisms um but there is some um there's another strategy and that's as you say sort of 
no novel next generation RET inhibitors, although these are all in relatively early clinical trial development and yeah. are at the moment still series of numbers and letters. Um, one of them is LOXO. 260. Yeah. Uh, so that's in um, phase one, two at the moment. Uh, and that has demonstrated some activity both in treatment resistant and in treatment naive RET um, driven um, uh, preclinical cancer models and some promising early trial data in, in phase one, two. Um, and there is another one called TPX0046. And again, similarly in very early uh, development at the moment. And in fact, a, sh a shout out to my colleague, Martin Forster at UCL, who I think, what I happen to know, uh, is going to be opening a um, a second line or relapsed RET study for pe people who've already been treated with a RET inhibitor. And that's a UCL hospital. I believe that's opening um, sometime uh, in the next month or so. Um, and I'm sure he'd be delighted to help should you have patients. Um, Major, that's incredibly helpful. Thank you very much. You've given this beautiful, calm overview uh, of where we are. Um, so I think the take home for patient for, for, for the audience is um, keep an eye out for RET. If you have a young non-smoking patient and you haven't found an EGFR or an ALK or perhaps the more common ones you might expect, look for RET. Make sure you've got ideally RNA, NGS, but if not, you know, fish will fish will do. Um, there is access uh, through NICE to first line selpocatinib, and we hope that other agents will join that. If you have already started chemo, then you still have access to these drugs as a second line again through NHS funding. Um, chemo remains an important part of what we do, and drugs can be very effective. Keep an eye out for the brain. Uh, do brain scans, and we will both, I think, recommend surveillance brain scans, um, and in event of progression after RET inhibitors and chemo, well, we hope that we will have um, new agents coming through in, in the near future. Uh, Nadja, thank you very much for educating me and our audience. Um, thank you very much to our audience for dialing in. Um, and we will be moving on to more uh, rare mutations in our next couple of podcasts. Nadja, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>